Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thank you for sharing that story as well. This morning, I'm going to do a Bible reading from Luke chapter 15. I want to read 24 verses together. We're looking at uh, stories of Jesus, parables of Jesus. And the first two stories that we're going to read um, come before but support the story we're going to look at, which is the third story. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 24. If you have your Bible, you can take it out. If you have a device that you read your Bible on, then you can take that out and follow along in this reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was, going, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of God. Amen. 
When we read this story, it's a nice story. We respond to it as a nice story. Many of you, you've read it many times. Maybe it's very familiar to you. But it's more than just a nice story. You see, when Jesus told this story, people would have been shocked at what he said. They would have said, no way, that can't be. No, don't do that. Shut up. That's what they would have been saying to him when they heard this story. So I'd like us to come back to the story this morning and maybe gain some of that shock and that surprise that the original audience had. But our situation is different than theirs. So we need to understand some of the details of the story in order to gain an understanding of the shock and surprise that's contained in it. Remember that surprise in a story, a parable, one of Jesus' story, a surprise moment helps us to understand the point of the story. The story starts with two types of audiences. So verses 1 and 2 give us context, and context is important in interpreting parables. This is how it goes, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Two types of audiences. The first audience is the tax collectors and the sinners, and the second audience are those people who call them tax collectors and sinners. It's a slur on their character. The second group are the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. They are the righteous people, the religious people of Jesus' day. So who are the tax collectors? Well, taxes were collected for the Roman government by Jewish agents who were especially detested because they were helping the pagan conqueror, collecting taxes to help Rome maintain their control over Israel. So these tax collectors were detested for that, but not just that. You see, there really was a collecting of tax, and these people would collect tax for Rome and they collect tax for themselves as well. And they got away with it because they were hired by Rome. So they were hated. They were detested. Sinners, while sinners were sort of a general category of people, thought it was notoriously evil people as well as those who just refused or were not able to follow the Mosaic law as it was interpreted by the religious leaders of their day. So it could be applied to tax collectors, adulterers, robbers, and, well, just people like that. And a good Jew of that day, a good Jew of that day wouldn't associate with those people. You stayed at arm's length from those people. You crossed the street so you didn't go near those people. You came near the tax collector only because you had to, and you paid your taxes and got out of there. So a good Jew wouldn't associate with those people, but Jesus did. In fact, Jesus ate with them. And when Jesus ate with those people, he gave them humanity. He gave them friendship. He said, they are worthwhile. Now, that's something the scribes and Pharisees and the good religious folk wouldn't do, but that's something Jesus did. So there are these two kinds of people that are there 
listening to Jesus, and it, it really seems from verses 1 and 2 that the tax collectors and sinners are getting a whole lot closer to Jesus than the Pharisees and the scribes are willing to do. So there's a story of the first son. Verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. You know, that son might as well have said, Father, just, just drop dead and give me the money, okay? He, he might as well have said, just die, old man, and have, hand over the property. I want my stuff. You're in the way. According to the law at that time, when property was divided, it would be divided with twice as much going to the older son. There's two sons in this case. So the older son of any number of sons, in this case two sons, the older son gets twice the portion, and the younger son gets one. So the younger son gets a third, and the older son gets two-thirds of the property. And property is what we're talking about here, more than cash in the bank, because, well, there were no banks. So property is what makes them rich. And so the father has a choice. He can, this is normal, on his death, give his property to his sons. So the older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son gets one-third. Or it, it was heard of that a father might actually give his property to his sons before his death. Again, two-thirds to the oldest, one-third to the youngest. But the understanding was, although they now owned it, he still had rights to the property. He was still the one running it. So what happens here? What happens here is the youngest son asks for his inheritance, which is really a slap in the face for the father. The father agrees, not unheard of, and then what does the younger son do with the property he's been given? So the land, the, the, proper, the inheritance is land ownership. This guy wants to get out of town, and you can't take a field with you. So he sells it. He sells the property. And in doing so, it, it, it may leave the family forever, lost to the family, perhaps forever. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? He goes to the neighbor, a neighbor who has property just abutting onto his, it's now his property, his inheritance, right? Abutting onto his fields. He goes to the neighbor and he says, Samuel, I have some fields to sell. And your fields are right beside my fields, and I'd like to sell them to you. And the neighbor, Samuel, says, what? You asked your father for an inheritance before he died? What a bad son you are. You've insulted your father. You're slapping your father on the face. How could you do this? Do you know if you sell this land, it goes away from your family, and you may never get it back again? Oh, by the way, how much do you want for that property? Hmm. He sold the property, no matter what anyone thought. He sold it. And he went on his way with cash in his pocket. And that's what he wanted. He wanted it to be portable. Not many days later, the son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property 
in reckless living. Well, the son seems to lose no time getting out of town. He's got his money. And this, um, this distant country is probably like a code word for Gentiles. It means somewhere away from the father, somewhere away from his cultural and religious heritage, somewhere away from his family, somewhere away from his Jewish roots, somewhere out there. A faraway country, a Gentile country somewhere. He squandered his money in, in wild living. The word squander means like a combination of unrestrained sensuality and spendthrift extravagance. Wow, what a life. Just think of Vegas and what you can spend there. That's the kind of life he was looking for. The older brother later says that he spent his money on prostitutes. He was living a life wildly out of control, even out of his control. And this is shocking. Not only does the father divide the inheritance and allow him to have his, not only does he allow the son to lose a part of the family inheritance, but this Jewish boy goes into Gentile territory to spend this family money. You know what? I think even those sinners and tax collectors that are listening to Jesus, even they would be thinking, well, I can raise my boy better than that, I'll tell you. Everybody would be shocked. It's a shame for the son. It's a greater shame for the father and probably for the community as well. But this isn't the biggest surprise in this story. And when he has spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He spent all his money. I mean, he got to the bottom of his money. That's not a surprise. He's now poor. Now, Jewish people of that day, they didn't look down on people who were poor because they were simply poor people. That wasn't the problem. The problem was this young man was poor because of the way he spent all of his money, giving all of his money to Gentiles. And now he's poor. Now he's come to the end. His foolish living has brought him to the end. But he hasn't reached the bottom yet. He probably thinks he's pretty close, but not yet. A severe famine comes on the land, meaning, of course, there's an economic downturn. This, this young man can't even find a job to feed himself. He can't even work for someone else for a job to feed himself. And he ends up accepting the most humiliating, repulsive form of servant labor for a Jew. He becomes a swine herder. That means pigs. He becomes a pig herder. Can you imagine for a Jewish boy. I mean, it, just, just imagine the violation of this rich boys, now formerly rich boys, Jewish pride and honor. His inheritance is lost, but so is his dignity and his honor lost as he feeds pigs. He hired himself out. Well, it literally means that he joined or glued himself to this person of means who gave him work, but, but he doesn't get food. I mean, does this make sense to anybody? <laughs> he, 
He's working, but not for money, not even for food. But there he is. The pods were probably the fruit of the carob tree and the, the carob pods, and they have no nutrition whatsoever. He has lost his wealth. He has lost his family identity, and now he loses his identity as a man as he lives with the pigs. I mean, does this happen today? Do you know someone who has reached the bottom of the bottom? It does happen today. Maybe you know someone who's in that place. They seem to have lost everything. As we, as a church, especially in these different groups, work with people like Andrew was talking about, or uh, some other, other uh, groups as well, you meet people who seem to have lost everything. They're living in government housing, which this young man didn't have. They seem to have lost it all. At the bottom. At the bottom. Sometimes it's only when you hit the bottom of bottoms that you wake up and you think or you least hope that there is another option. Jesus said, but he came to himself. He came to himself. So he comes to his senses, and this implies that he starts to realize that he was wrong. I mean, running away from the father, his destructive lifestyle, it's, it's only got him up against the wall. In fact, he's in a ditch against the wall. He's between a rock and a hard place. That's where it's got him, all this running away. And a glimmer of hope occurs when he begins to change his mind. He decides to stop running from the Father and even turn and return to the Father. And this kind of U-turn thinking in action is what Jesus calls repentance. Turning around and going in a different way. A change of mind that brings a change of heart and a change of life. Jesus calls it repentance. The turning point in anyone's life is to come to your senses and just like realize you're wrong. That we have not been living for the Father the way he wants us to live for him and to turn our hearts toward home, our, our hearts toward the Father. Jesus continues, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he seems to see the nature of his failure and decides to risk the shame and the scorn of his father, of his brother, his friends, the people in his village. He's going to risk all of that. He sets out toward home, and he's practicing this speech of shame and confession all along the way. I mean, he's got it worked out. He knows what he needs to say to his father. He confesses his guilt. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And then he admits that he, what he has done results in a destruction of the father-son relationship. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And finally, he suggests a solution. Make me one of your hired men. See, hired men didn't live in the house. Servants lived in the house. Hired men didn't live in the house. They lived somewhere else, maybe in the village, and came, uh, they came to this area, to the farm, to do work. He says, take me on as one of your hired men. 
So he got up and he went to the Father. In the midst of his remorse for his wrongdoing, his sin, he has some faith in the Father that, that the Father will in some way accept him back. He has no idea what kind of reception the Father wishes for him. The young man in the story would be utterly astonished at what happens, and the people listening to the story will be utterly astonished at what happens in this story when Jesus gets to the next part. So this story has already had a lot of surprises, but the biggest and the best surprise is yet to come. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the audience is saying, what? No way. I doubt it. Oh, yeah, right. Shut up. If the tax collectors and sinners would find this really hard to believe. But the religious people, the religious people would be outraged. You see, everybody knows that in Jesus' story, he's talking about God the Father. So what's your view of God the Father? You see, God is an angry God. And he's always angry at you, and you can, you can never get into his good graces. Do you see God is just someone who's way far off, out there somewhere, sovereign? He is sovereign. Way out there, and that's it? Is that your view of God? Because if it is, just like the religious people that Jesus is talking to, this confronts us. Because God is so much more. So much more. And he is the Father in this story. Often religious people are still outraged to think that God would shower this kind of love on that kind of person. Even though the young man had lived his life in direct opposition to the father, the heart of the father hadn't changed. He continued to love his son all this time. And surely the father's grief was great and profound for the son who had gone away to a far country, somewhere far away. So the father never ceases to watch and to wait for his son to return. And that's why Jesus says in this story, while he, the son, was still a long way off. I mean, can you imagine? The old man gets up in the morning and he looks down the road and it's empty. He comes in, he has lunch. And after lunch, he goes out and stands on the porch for a couple minutes, looks down the road, and it's empty. After supper, he goes out and he sits on his porch, and he just gazes down that road. But the road is empty. And this happens day after day after day after day. The father is longing for the son to turn and come to him. He looks down that road. He longs for him to come to him. And then one day, one day, he sees someone coming down the road. And he thinks, I recognize that walk. I, I recognize that build. And he knows that it's his son. He's been watching all that time, and he recognizes his son. Okay, just stop right here. Put yourself in his place. How would you react? Your child has taken advantage of you. Your child has manipulated you out of, well, a third of the inheritance. 
Your child has taken off somewhere else. How would you react? If you were the father or mother in this story, what would your reaction be here? Well, for many people, it would be really different than what Jesus says this father did. I mean, would you stand on the porch and wait for that child to come and grovel and snivel and ask for, for forgiveness? Or, or would you just give them the silent treatment? Like, they get the quiet treatment now. I mean, your silence. They get that for a while until they get to think about things. How would you react in this situation? Well, I've already read the story, so you know how the father reacted. But this is what the religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes, were thinking, that they would wait till that son comes to them, and he could grovel. They might even let him be there all day long. That's the way they would treat him. But not the father in this story. He is driven by loving compassion immediately. As soon as he recognizes who's coming, he runs to meet him with lavish hugs and kisses. And in fact, in that day, uh, farms were set up different than we think of them today. So if you go for a drive out of Ottawa um, into the country, you don't have to go far, and you see farms. So you see this farm with a house there, and then the next farm, you know, a house over there, etc. But for safety, Farms would be integrated as part of the village. And so the farmers would live in the village, and then the farm would extend out from the village. So this is not, this lad is not coming to some isolated place, walking down the country lane where nobody is going to see him. He's coming down the road to the village. And that's important. The father runs to meet his son. You see, if someone in the village sees him first, because he has brought shame on his father, he has brought shame on the neighborhood, he's brought shame on the village. If someone from the village were to see him first, they might denounce him and say that he couldn't be a part of this village. And there's a special word for that. But they could do that. They could invoke this. And the rest of the villagers would need to go along. So the father races. It says runs. I think he raced to his son to go to his son and to arrive there first before anyone else had a chance to see him. Now, I have jeans on this morning, right? Runners. So I could run, not very far, but I could run. But the father in that day would be dressed with a robe on because of his station in society. And in fact, it was considered improper for a man to lift his robe and show his ankles. I bet you didn't know that. There was a conversation between some other rabbis as to whether or not a man could properly lift his robe while walking through thorns so as not to catch the robe and tear it on the thorns. That's how serious it is. And what does his father do? Well, what I imagine he's doing, because when we were in Africa, I did wear um, clothing called a boo-boo, which is like a robe, and it goes down pretty much to your ankles. It still shows your ankles, but it goes down. If you want to run, you need to reach down, you need to grab the back hem and pull it up between your legs exposing a lot more than your ankles. That's what he did. And he ran. 
to his son. That's the love of the father. He ran to his son. Kissing is a, a sign of reconciliation. If, um, if two men, especially two leaders in, in uh, say, the village had a disagreement, but they were able to put aside their differences and they wanted to show everybody that they were good again, they would kiss each other publicly. That was their society. It was a sign of reconciliation. And what do we see here? We see a father who runs to his son, unheard of, and he lavishes him with kisses and hugs. He just, he's like, he can't stop. He's so happy to see him. He loves him so much. He just keeps kissing him and, and hugging him. This is what God's love is like. Wonderful. Extravagant beyond expectation. Extravagant beyond anything we can think. Not only forgiving those who turn to him admitting they're wrong, but, but embracing them with love and with grace. This is the Father God whom Jesus knew. You need to know that. Who is God? Well, wouldn't it be good to ask God the Son? This is the Father God whom Jesus knew. Not someone who was always angry with everybody but someone who loved lavishly and was waiting, waiting for people to turn to him so he could embrace them with his grace and his love and draw them into his family. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring me the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found and they began to have a party. Well, that's what we call it today. They began to celebrate. They began to have a party. The son is not even able to get out his prepared speech of repentance Maybe, maybe the father could see his heart and didn't need all those words that the son had prepared. Or, or maybe the son got to a certain point and realized he was being accepted back as a son. Wow. He didn't need to go on with what he had prepared to say. The father immediately calls for a celebration. I mean, it's party time. He says, bring the robe. There's a robe of honor showing acceptance as a full-fledged member of the family. Not only that, he says, bring the best robe, probably the father's own best robe, and he puts it on his son. Bring a ring. A ring would give authority. It's a sign of the father's honor and probably also wealth entrusted to the very one who has squandered a third of the family's wealth. I mean, it's, it just boggles your mind. The shoes are symbolic of saying that the son is not a servant. He's a free man in the father's household. Not everybody had shoes. The killing the fattened calf, well, that's in contrast. It could have done a goat or a, you know, a sheep, like a, something small like that, a small animal. But he says, no, the fattened calf, it means this is not a little celebration. This is a celebration that is going to involve the entire village before anyone else 
can condemn this son who has shamed the father, shamed his family, shamed the village before anyone else can pronounce that word of condemnation. The father does this. And no one can say anything because he is accepted back now by the actions of the father. When we think of um, a calf, we think of a little cow. And they are, they start that little when they're first born. But a calf is anything up to uh, a yearling. My brother used to raise calves. He'd get them small like this. He'd raise them for eight to ten months. And then, literally, he fattened them. That was the whole point. And then he'd send them off to market. And when he sent them off, they were 800 pounds. That's big. There's a lot of meat. In fact, there's so much meat that one year, my brother gave us a half of his cow. Half, like all the meat cut up, right? It filled a 20-square-foot freezer. That's what we had. It filled it right to the top. That's a lot of meat. So the father calls for the fattened calf. This isn't just for the immediate family. This isn't just for his farm. This is for, he wants to, everybody to celebrate because my son has come home. And I love him so much. And isn't it great that he's here with us? This is a story that's a gospel story. It's a story of love and compassion and, and forgiveness and grace of the Heavenly Father in the face of wretchedness and destruction and shame and, and guilt of sin and wrong choices and wrong actions and wrong living, and in fact, rebellion. It's a story of love and grace winning over sin and destruction in one person's life. And the result is celebration. Did you notice as I read those other two stories that we're not going to focus on, but each of those other two stories end with celebration, with joy. And the one says, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Even the angels in heaven are having a party because the boy has come home. It's a time of joy, the story of grace. Jesus told the story before his death. Now we know that his death on the cross is the greatest expression of God's love toward us. I mean, the, the fact is, there's not one of us who hasn't done something wrong. There's not one of us who doesn't deserve punishment. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins, our guilt, our shame on him. That's God's love. And that's the love of Jesus. And that's the story of grace. In the story, the father had to give up a third of the inheritance to get a son back. Well, our father in heaven gave up his son, Jesus, to die on a cross so that he could have us back where we belong with him. So what do you think? I mean, are you ready for a, a party? A real celebration when you come home to the Father experiencing the embrace of his love and his grace? I mean, the younger brother was right when he realized he was wrong. That was the beginning. That was his turning point. He was right when he realized he was wrong and he knew he needed to ask for forgiveness. And he was, he was unprepared, though, for this incredible, overwhelming response of the Father. 
Father God wants to forgive you and accept you into that loving relationship with himself and with Jesus. And what do you say to that invitation? There are two lost sons in this story and one loving father. Two lost sons, one solution, responding to the father's invitation. One solution to our lostness, responding to the father's invitation. This is a parable of Jesus. A parable is a short story with a point and a call to action. So the main point of the parables are God's love and grace is the only solution to our lostness. The only solution. And the call to action is this. God invites us to come into his party of grace, to celebrate his grace and love with him. God welcomes you to the party of his grace and his love. Will you come in? Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And in this book, he has a story um, about a teenager in Traverse City, Michigan. Now, um, this girl thinks that her her parents are way too restrictive. And uh, one time when she's wearing a skirt that's up quite a bit, the parents uh, tell her she can't wear it, and in fact, they're going to ground her. And she decides that that's enough. She's getting out of here. So she runs away. And she runs away to the big city of Detroit. Well, the second day that she's there, she meets um, a man in a big flashy car, and he seems like so nice, and he, he takes her for a ride and then out to a fancy restaurant, and then later that day, he puts her up in a, a fancy hotel and then suggests, well, she might try these pills that he has because they'll make her feel really good. Two months pass. During that time, he, well, teaches her what to do with men. Living in a penthouse, she forgets about her modest home in Traverse City. And she has a scare one time when she sees her picture on a milk carton. You know those pictures that get on milk cartons with, have you seen this child? A year passes and she starts to show signs of illness. She notices that the man who was so nice to her to start with, well, he's not so nice now. In fact, he's just downright mean sometimes. And she has less and less money. She has to buy her drugs herself. And eventually this guy just locks her out of the penthouse. So she's on the street. She has nowhere to go. She has, she has to find somewhere warm to sleep. She's by herself. She has no friends. She has no family. She has no one to turn to. No money. No food. And then she begins to remember what home was like. And she remembers playing with her golden retriever dog and how much fun that was. And a hundred times a day, she says, oh, God, why did I leave? It isn't many days before she decides that more than anything else in her life, she just really wants to go home. And so she finds some quarters somewhere, and she makes a phone call home. And when she makes this phone call, she tries two or three times, and then she, gives, she leaves a message. And in the message, she says, Mom, Dad, it's me. Um, I would like to come home, and I'm taking a bus, and I'll be there at midnight tomorrow night. And, well, if you want me, I guess you'll be there. If not, I'm going to stay in the bus, and I'll just keep on going to Canada. And so she got on the bus, and she kept riding along, and she kept wondering, like, did they get my message or not? She wasn't sure. She wasn't sure what to, what to expect. And so mile after mile, and, 
And finally, the bus pulled into Traverse City, and, and the bus driver pulled the button on the air brakes, and the air brakes hissed, and the bus driver said, 15-minute break, and then we're heading to Canada. So she collected up what few things she had, looked at her little compact mirror, made sure there was no lipstick on her lips, got off the bus on wobbly legs. She walked into the bus station, and as she walked in, she saw that there on, on plastic tables and chairs, there were 40 of her brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles, and even her grandmother was there, and they were all waving to her and, and wearing these goofy hats and blowing noisemakers, and there was this banner printed on the wall that said, Welcome home. And her dad runs up to her, and she has just enough time to blurt out these words, sorry, dad. But he just, he just hugs her. He says, hush, sweetheart. We have a great party waiting for you at home. Regardless of my foolish choices, regardless of your foolish choices, God the Father looks for us to turn our hearts to our home and take steps toward him, and he runs, he runs to embrace us. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to leave you with a question for next week. You see, we haven't finished the story, as you may have noticed. The whole chapter goes together. So I'm going to leave you the question for next week. Think about this. Would you have been there? If you were an aunt, an uncle, mother, father, if you were a cousin or whatever, would you have been one of those 40 people standing on those plastic chairs, shouting and yelling and blowing your tutor with a funny hat on? Would you have been there? Or would you have refused to go to the station to welcome home a girl like that, knowing she, where she's been and what she's done?